Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Ranking of the Stars, a podcast in which I, Jack D. Loboblick, and my lovely, luscious, lights camera action wife, <laughs> I am Emmeline D. Loboblick, watch in chronological order every single movie that has won the Oscar for Best Picture, and not only watch them, but rank them according to however we feel at the time. Yeah, and sometimes we have to do some readjustments. <laughs> Today's movie is... Today's movie is The Great Ziegfeld. Alternative title, Glitter, Glitter Everywhere, and a Coat of Mink. All right. That's the most thought I put into it. <laughs> I was up half the night. I hope you appreciate it. <laughs> poster. Let's start with the poster. This one Ew. reminds me very much of uh, the Broadway melody. It feels like the it has the same kind of like color scheme. You've got to be shitting me with this. <laughs> it's another. It's another heads poster. God damn it! Well, heads. We have bodies too. We have the dancers at the bottom. For a movie stuffed to the gills with such visual splendor. Yeah. The fact that the poster is just another, here's the actor's heads again. Ugh, this is criminal. You know what? Get I it away. Get, know... I can't even, no. I refuse to look anymore. I've turned my head away. You know what I would have loved on this poster? What? Is the big musical number. The, uh, we're going to talk about it in a little bit. But yeah. The, the... Uh, tall like rotating platform that they have. I think it would have been a it would have made for a great poster. Yeah, that would have been beautiful. Yeah. But instead we have so the title at the top in pink and orange, the great Ziegfeld, and in the middle we have the titular uh, character Florence Ziegfeld and the two women that he shared his life with. One of them is Anna, one of them is Audrey. Yes. No. No. One of, one of, one them, of is... them is Anna, one of them is Billy. Billy was a blonde? Yeah. Hmm. You sure that's not Audrey? I am sure that it's Billy. Alrighty. Because she had, Billy is supposed to be a redhead, and I, I feel like I see some, uh, like, reddish hair in her. It wouldn't make sense for it to be Audrey, because they were never together, so... And then we get the uh, names of the actors. And at the bottom right-hand corner, we see some... It looks like flames. Almost looks like dragons when you first look at it. Yeah. But the, it's supposed to be dancers and performers on the shows. Some of the incredibly flamboyant costumes they have in this movie. Yeah. I believe those are the ones that happened during the... Is that during the this first or the second lengthy musical production those costumes are from i think they're from the performance on the roof i believe so yeah i believe so this is the first biopic movie uh that we have for this podcast and it is about the life of uh florence edward ziegfeld jr who was an american impresario and producer uh, he had just died in 1932. We're in 1936, so um, people wasted no time in making a movie about his life. The end of an era. Death of an icon. Yeah, death and definitely of uh, somebody who 
defined what it was to be on Broadway. Characters and actors? Yeah. I have a, a longer list than uh, usual for this one because we have a lot of interesting actors, people that we'll see in other movies uh, or that uh, might not be from Best Picture movies, but they're movies that, that we know. Yeah, this um, might be the first time we've had actors playing themselves. I believe so. Oh. I believe so. Uh, so we have uh, William Powell uh, as Florence Ziegfeld. Louise Reiner as Anna Held, Myrna Loy as Billy Burke, Frank Morgan as Jack Billings, and Frank Morgan was the wizard in The Wizard of Oz. Yep, looks a little bit like John Cleese in this movie to me. Yeah, yeah, now that you say that, I can see that. Got a little bit of that old man, like, puffy face. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have Virginia Bruce as Audrey Dane. Reginald Owen as Samson, who's kind of the accountant for Zigzag. Yes, the man who keeps the books. Yes. Ernest Cossert as Sydney, who's Zigfeld's valley. Yeah, manservant. Valet, not valley. Fanny Bryce as herself. Yep. Fanny Bryce was the original funny girl. Nat Pendleton as Sando, the strongest the man strong in the world at the beginning of the movie. He can make his muscles dance <laughs> and wow all the ladies. And Ray Bolger also as himself. And Ray Bolger was the scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz. Yep, always a pleasure to see him. Yeah, he's funny. He's got a, a very distinctive look and face. He's, you know, tall, skinny... Just he's he's a very distinctive actor. I Incredibly think. talented performer. Yeah. Uh, a master at looking like he's out of control with his body, but being in perfect control. Oh, definitely. In the scene when he's tap dancing in this movie, it's I just kept waiting for him to just fall on his face. But yeah, like you say, he's a master at at looking like he's going to fall, and just and not doing it. It was it was brilliant. All part of the plan. Yeah. Yeah. Some information about the movie. So it was directed by Robert Z. Leonard. He directed another movie related to Ziegfeld entitled uh, Ziegfeld Girl in uh, 1941. And he directed 106 movies in his career between 1913 and 1957. Sheesh, man. They could really just belt him out back in those days. Yeah, well, not not all his movies are of the length of this one. Uh, and not all of them had the same budget either. But yeah, 106 movies. That's incredible. Yeah. Back in the serial days where they just put out one a week. <laughs> yeah. It was produced by MGM. Uh, the LA premiere was on March 22nd, 1936. And the US release date uh, throughout the country was on April 8th, 1936. Did I say 1938? You may have. I may have. Sorry, I got lost. The running time is 177 minutes, which makes it the longest movie we've watched so far. Yep, but not the longest synopsis. Not the longest synopsis, and not the longest movie we'll watch. Yeah, I can feel... On this journey. I can feel Gone with the Wind and, and Ben-Hur and Lawrence of Arabia all looming like specters on the horizon. And Gone with the Wind is coming very fast. Yeah, I know. 
in just three movies. Four hours, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, almost four hours. Uh, the budget was $2,183,000 and made over $4,673,000 at the box office. Some fun facts about the movie before we move on to the synopsis. Uh, Zigfeld was already a character in one of the movies that we watched in the Broadway Melody. Although they changed his name, it was Mr. Zanfield. Yeah, Mr. Zanfield. And uh, between 1896 and 1932, he produced 77 shows in the U.S., but also in France. He had some shows for a couple of years in the, at the Moulin Rouge in Ooh Paris. La la. Ooh la la. Yeah. Ziegfeld yeah, was known for his shows, known as the Follies. And some of the performers he employed, such as uh, Fanny Bryce and Harriet Hochter, uh, who was a, a ballet dancer and a contortionist, appear as themselves in the movie. I believe Harriet is the one who gives the final lengthy performance. She's the tap dancer in white, and all the I others are so. in black. I think so. Uh, Billy Burke, who was Ziegfeld's second wife, also worked on the movie. She worked as a, a technical consultant. For all the, the follies and, uh, you know, stage arrangements and, and costumes and stuff like that. Yep, get it right or pay the price. <laughs> the musical numbers in the movie were extremely expensive. I can imagine. Uh, the number that's called A Pretty Girl is Like a Melody alone cost $220,000 at the time, which is equivalent to over $4.5 million today. Shh. Good night. Is that the layer cake one? Yeah, the, it's the one that features a towering rotating volute, uh, which represents a, a wedding cake that had 175 steps, had um, a 70 foot uh, diameter, and weighed 100 tons, which is which equals 200,000 pounds. Man, I wonder what happened to that thing. It has to be stored somewhere. It has to be, you know, at the it's motion pictures. And maybe, but it would be such a shame. I to, know it's a tragedy, uh, but it's way too big. Like the the poppy field, it. the poppy field from the Wizard of Oz, like didn't survive. Oh, so that's a shame. Yeah, that should be stored somewhere at like Universal Studios or in a, a cinema museum because it was beautiful. Yeah, these amazing works of art that only exist on film now. Yeah. Because the physical things have been destroyed. That's sad. That's just for, that's really sad. Yeah. Because there's some beautiful pieces uh, that are uh, designed for, for those movies. Oh, every every costume in this movie is a, a work of art that should oh, be in a museum absolutely. somewhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. Speaking of costumes, there were so many costumes for this movie that they had to hire 250 tailors and seamstresses. There were a lot of dancers, a lot of, like, you know, background people, so... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the movie won three Academy Awards for Best Picture, Best Actress for Louise Reiner, and Best Dance Direction. It was also nominated for Best Art Direction. It didn't win Best Art Direction? I was surprised. That's insane. When I saw that, I was like, this is a crime, because this is... As many negative comments as we may, as we might have during this podcast about the this movie, honestly, if I don't know 
why it didn't win why it didn't win no, best art direction because it was amazing yeah it blows even modern movies out of the water yeah some of the 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 set pieces the just all of the sets that they had uh, to build the coordination that they had to do for some of the the scenes and follies it just i don't know how it didn't win yeah best art direction that layer cake sequence alone yeah should have won it and then immediately afterwards they go into the whole thing with the moving stage on the roof yes wild yeah uh so and it was also nominated for best director best film editing and best writing hmm um, MGM made three more Ziegfeld movies, uh, Ziegfeld Girl in 1941, as I said previously, Ziegfeld Follies in 1946, and Showboat in 1951. This one is a, an adaptation of, uh, one of the, the shows that Ziegfeld put on Broadway. Yeah. Legendary figure. Yeah. In Hollywood and Broadway, his shadow looms large. We'll be telling stories of him for generations. And then the, my last piece of fun fact uh, is it has a 72% approval rate on Rotten Tomatoes. And the consensus seems to be that the movie is a great technical and artistic achievement. But uh, that nowadays people seem to think that it is full of cliches, repetition, and historical inaccuracies and therefore did not age well. We'll have some things to talk about, you know, throughout the the synopsis. Some things that definitely did not age very well in this movie where we were no. like, oh, geez. Yeah, a couple times where we both physically recoiled. <laughs> yeah. And with that, let's move on to the synopsis. The plot. Opening credits in shining lights. It's This is the most artistic and fancy opening credits we've had and i think the longest the opening credits have lasted so far i think so it's the you know old broadway type of signage where they're using just full-sized like bare light bulbs to make the letters mm -hmm. and they use that for the opening credits and just shift the camera around to different signs i thought it was really yeah, really neat because it felt like it was all that that all the signs were in the same space and that they were just really moving the camera from one to the next yep and then fireworks and signs in the same style saying the World's Fair 1893 mm -hmm. uh, were on the streets of Cairo with a huge crowd, multiple elephants and carnival barkers. Focus on one such barker who is enticing the crowd to come see Sandow the Strongman. He juggles pianos, he plays marbles with cannonballs, he can even raise his own salary. The crowd is pulled away, however, by a competing showman right across the midway who is promoting the women of Little Egypt and their famous dance, the Hoochie Cooch. One, another P, <laughs> the Hoochie Cooch. The Hoochie Cooch. I don't think that's historically accurate for Egypt. I don't think so either. I have one more little piece of fun fact for this is that the... Um, the actress who plays the main, like, belly dancer who's showcased, uh, ended up suing MGM, I believe, because she said that, uh, the movie represented belly dancing and Little Egypt as something that was, uh, way too lewd and, what? uh, outrageous. And, huh? Yeah. 
She put the costume on. She, she was. I know. She was part she of was it. She was there while they were filming. She ended. Yeah, she sued them afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. They made a bunch of money. Maybe I can get some of that money. <laughs> The crowd enters the theater to see the dancing girls. They're like, there's this big crowd of people just in between the two barkers. And they keep they're getting pulled back and forth depending upon how well the, the shows are being advertised. But they ultimately go for the dancing girls. The crowd enters the theater to see the dancing girls. And the barker promoting them uh, shouts at the other barker across the way. How's business, Ziggy? Ha ha ha. Uh, the one who shouted is uh, Billings, who is the, the wizard from Wizard of Oz. The camera moves inside Ziggy's theater before he can answer, and we get to see Sandow the Strongman lifting the largest dumbbell in the world, which, according to the announcer, weighs 750 pounds. This thing is comically large because once he gets it above his head, uh, each dumbbell on either side opens up to reveal mm -hmm. that there's a woman inside. Yeah. So the balls on the end of it have to be big enough for a full-size adult woman. So yeah. it's... Yeah cartoonishly huge and i was just expecting it to be like full of air or something you know where you blow up a balloon and then write uh, 200 tons on the side of it almost all the seats in the theater are empty and as one couple leaves the show the wife asks why she was brought to such a show and the husband replies because you wouldn't let me go see the dancing girls <laughs> this is our only other option Ziegfeld sits down with sandow and says the stage needs to be higher so the people in back can see him but there's never anyone in the back says sandow and he, Sandow's a little upset that nobody came. He's, like, got an iron bar. And he, like, very lightly smacks a table and the table yeah. collapses. And he, like, bends the the iron with his bare hands. Which, you know, I think it goes back to, oh, he can even uh, raise his own salary. Like, he's, he, that the idea that I got in that scene uh, was that maybe if there were more people, maybe he would be paid more. Didn't think of that, yeah. A little, little negging. They commiserate together about the show's po poor performance, and Ziegfeld offers to take Sandow out to dinner. Cut back to the arrival showman, Jack Billings, who is approached by a woman who jokingly tells him to put his hands up and give her the money he collected from ticket sales. Billings and the woman also decide to go out to dinner, but before they can leave, a telegraph boy walks up and hands Billings a message from Ziegfeld, who wants to fake a romance between Sandow and the lead dancing girl to stir up drama and increase the popularity of both shows. And he said, oh, I'm willing to go, you know, 50-50 with you so yep. that they could share the, share the profits. 50-50. The woman asks if Billings knows Ziegfeld, and Billings says they've been pals for years, but she wouldn't like him because he's always broke. In the restaurant, Sandow is complaining that the cheese is too strong, while Ziegfeld complains that the coffee is too weak. The telegraph boy shows up with Billings' reply, which says that they shouldn't fake a romance. They should have a legitimate romance between Miss Egypt and Sandow, and they can split the children 50-50. Sandow is not pleased with this idea. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't, he takes it very literally and yes. says that he doesn't want I to. I don't want to have children, and even if I did, I certainly would them, wouldn't split them with anyone. Billings then arrives with his lady friend and tells uh, Ziegfeld... He's heard he's being kicked out of the fair on Saturday. Ziegfeld turns to answer, sees the lady, and immediately forgets about Billings. He gets up out of his chair and introduces himself, shakes her hand. And she also immediately forgets about Billings because she just sits down and starts talking with him, which is the beginning of a recurring joke in this movie of Ziegfeld stealing uh, women away from Billings. It, it happens, I think, a good three, four times. 
throughout yeah. the runtime is we like anytime Billings uh, shows up with a woman on his arm, she's going to be leaving the venue with Zigfield at the end of the night. She also forgets about Billings sitting down at Zigfield's table while he tells her he's seen her at the fair for the last few days and critiques the outfit she's worn. He talks about how, oh, I saw you in this color dress with this color hat and those two colors clash and you should wear this instead, which starts another uh, recurring theme of Ziegfeld negging women and saying, oh, you're good looking, but not that good looking. And Yeah, just uh, critiquing their outfits and how they behave themselves sometimes. Yeah. Your voice is nice, but it's not that nice. Yeah. That's yeah one of his main strategies. Which somehow, you know, I mean, well, as we'll see along the, the synopsis, that women also seem to like it. So clearly the, in this scene, she's, she's a little offended, but also she's being charmed. Yeah, it almost always works. Like uh, when he first meets uh, Anna Held, he tells her, oh, you're wearing too many rings on your hand. And she goes, yes. oh, thank you. And, like she takes it as a compliment. It's it's bizarre. A lot of his strategies he employs are very bizarre and they always work. Well, he's very much portrayed as a, as a ladies' man. Yes. Billings eventually pulls her away, but she tells uh, Ziegfeld she'll see him around the fair. Not after Saturday, you won't, says Billings, and he laughs. Billings has this very forced artificial ha 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 laugh that he does almost every time he's on screen he uses it like as a as a punctuation for his sentences it's not genuine whatsoever but he does it constantly as sandow and zigfeld leave the restaurant they pass by two elephants and zigfeld touches the trunk of one because he once heard that if they raise their trunk after you touch them it's good luck it doesn't lift for zigfeld but then Sandow gives it a try, and the trunk raises up and sprays water all over him. This causes him to remove his shirt, and as he walks bare-chested back to the theater uh, with Zegfeld, he complains that his muscles can dance better than the women of <laughs> Little Egypt, bouncing his bicep as proof, and the camera zooms in on his bicep as it quivers. Uh, Modern-day audiences will uh, probably have seen The Rock, uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, do this trick with his biceps, yeah. where he makes one bounce. Uh, that's what Sando's doing, but with his bicep instead of his chest. A woman notices, uh, Ziegfeld notices her noticing, and asks if she'd like to maybe touch Sando's bicep. She does, and is so overwhelmed by the experience that she faints. This was Her a... husband is there with her. Yes, this was a, a good bit. This, this movie has a, a pretty decent sense of humor, because the husband is in, not happy about any of this the whole time. She's very starry-eyed. Is that Sandow the strong man? And everything she says, he, the husband is just trying to pull her away. Let's go. Let's get out of here. Come on. And then uh, she touches the quivering muscle and oh, has a case of the vapors and faints. And as she falls on him, he's like leaning against a, a wall and she just she's resting against him. That gives Ziegfeld an idea. And he begins to advertise Sandow's performances by having him stand outside the theater, bouncing his muscles for the crowd. Mm. The crowd shifts away from the dancing girls to enter Ziegfeld's theater. And Ziegfeld calls across to Billings. How's business, Jack? After the performance, we see Ziegfeld walk up to Billings' lady friend and asks if she likes the ring he got her. She does, and they walk off arm in arm, and I don't think we ever see that lady again. No. <laughs> Which is another recurring thing in this movie of Ziegfeld meeting a new pretty lady, 
charming her and winning her over. Uh, they uh, end up together as a couple, and then you never see her again. Yeah, just or, or even when it's just for his job at a, for, as a producer, uh, you, we see a lot of uh, a lot of women. He calls them, you know, his girls, and they come and they're just come and go. They they come and talk to him. He charms them, convinces them to be in his shows, and then. Yeah, we know we see them maybe for like one or two scenes and and off they go. Yeah, yeah. after he has charmed them, the fun is over and he moves on to the next project. Yeah, his girls. Goes through them like tissue paper. Next, says Ziegfeld. Then we are in the Chicago Musical College, which is run by Ziegfeld's father. Inside a large study filled with expensive artwork and instruments, a little girl is practicing scales on a piano while Ziegfeld Sr. watches. She gave me very strong uh, Shirley Temple vibes. Uh, yeah, you have I her, see that. Yeah. Have her in Europe, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. She, she's very, yeah, saccharine and sweet and, mm -hmm. and cute in that way, and she's got the curly hair. Yes. Uh, she asks if he is aware that she's mad at his son for leaving them for the fair. She then goes on to tell him she's going to marry his son. It was settled months ago. You know who that little girl reminded me of also? She looked like you know, blonde and had like uh, very like high cheeks. And she almost looked like she had like weight makeup uh, on, on her face for her age. She reminded me of Cindy Lou in The Grinch. The Grinch. Oh, Cindy Lou Who? Yeah, Cindy Lou Who. Yeah, I can see it. As she's talking about this uh, engagement, the younger Ziegfeld enters without her noticing and sits down beside her, playing along and acting surprised that his father didn't know about the engagement. Mm. He gives her a heart-shaped box of chocolates uh, and also gets a, a kiss on the cheek from her yeah. and tells his father that he's heading to New York with Sandow to keep the show going. His father is not happy about it complaining that he's built one of the greatest music schools in the world with his own hands and brought up his son in art and culture, and yet his son is choosing to be, and I quote, a beef exhibitor. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he considers this whole thing beneath Ziegfeld. It's not true art. If Ziegfeld leaves again, his father will never talk to him again. Upon hearing that, the little girl starts to cry, and Ziegfeld goes to comfort her. He sits her on his knee and tells her that he isn't really her fellow. That's what she's been referring to. Uh, as, my fellow. Yeah, my fellow. That's my fellow. You don't like me anymore? She asks. Ziegfeld says he does like her. Loves her, in fact. Uh, but the problem is he loves every girl. Yeah, and this is where this uh, scene was turned a little creepy for me. Not just a little creepy, uh, a whole lot of creepy. I yeah. think we we both visibly recoiled from this upcoming yeah. line. Uh, Ziegfeld says, You see, some people like beautiful paintings, and other people like beautiful flowers. Me? I like beautiful little girls. Yeah, if he had said beautiful girls, I would have been sort of okay with it. But just the fact that he says beautiful little girls, yeah. that was... Oof. Ooh, no. Yeah, I have in my notes, oh no. It gave me the chills. Yeah, all the way bad. Someday he's going to take all the beautiful little girls and put them in a picture together, and she can be in it. Yeah, this whole thing with her was 
slightly creepy because she's not related no. to them in any way. And he's like sitting her on his lap and getting kisses from her and her talking about how she's going to marry him when she's older. Yeah. Yeah, they weren't as aware of the concept of grooming back then, <laughs> I guess. It's not great. In the meantime, it might be best if they break off their engagement because the reason he gives her is that she's going to be dating uh, boys around her own age and he would get jealous. So it's yeah. better to just call the whole thing off. He gets up and his father puts his hands on his arms and tells him that whatever he does, he'll support him. Change of heart after seeing this little performance. Yeah, very quick change of heart. Yeah, one of many very quick chains of heart in this movie, as we shall see. Then we get a montage of headlines about Sandow's rising popularity. We get to see, like, posters and stuff with his mm -hmm. uh, painted image on them and a bunch of headlines about how well things are going. And scenes of women touching his muscles, just uh, around a circle and around him, just ooh, ah. He also lifts a wooden platform with two horses on it, which is impressive. They arrive in San Francisco, and a headline informs us that uh, the Sandow opening is being overshadowed by a proposed fight between a lion and a bear. Cut to Zegfeld calling the Humane Society complaining about the crime of making two animals fight. And aren't they going to put a stop to this? They say they are, and the next headline says that instead of a bear, Sandow will be fighting the lion. Which, shouldn't there be somebody uh, worried about that, too? Like, I mean, if Sandow is really the strongest man in the world, like, that would also be a crime against, no. uh, against animals. The problem was that dumb beasts were fighting. If one of the beasts is smart, then it's okay. <laughs> this is also our first experience with how low Ziegfeld is willing to go yes with his strategies to get what he wants which yeah he has no real moral scruples about anything no and in doing research uh, for the, the for the, the podcast he has a, a little trick later on with Anna Hild and that was all true like he used to, whenever things were not going his way apparently he used to just make shit up and uh, to popularize, popularize his shows and just and attract attention so this is one of the maybe one of the first stunts that he pulled to attract to attract people to his show yeah he will just say whatever he needs to say regardless of uh its validity or truth yeah whatever they need to hear uh, we then see Sandow in a cage with the lion, and he's wearing like a, a Tarzan kind of uh, leopard print speedo. Yeah. And nothing else. Uh, but the lion just lays on the ground, and the crowd boos. Next headline says that the Sandow fight is a fraud, and we fade into Billings reading it on the deck of a ship and laughing. Ha ha ha. Uh, he has a new lady friend, and she asks what's so funny. He tells her she wouldn't understand because she doesn't know Ziegfeld, but Ziegfeld is probably in jail by now. Ziegfeld then walks right by them smoking a cigar, and Billings does a double take. He sees Billings, and the uh, two walk to the railing for a chat. Ziegfeld tells Billings that Sandow is now working in movies, so Ziegfeld is heading to Europe to relax. Definitely not looking for talent for a new show. Definitely not. Mm -hmm. Nope, never. Me? What? Me? No. Billings is also totally not looking either. Neither of them are looking, and both of them know the other is lying. Of course. But this is uh, part of their uh, routine with each other, is they always 
they just constantly lie to each other with the full knowledge that they both know that that each is lying, but yeah. never calling each other out on Even it. Even before the beginning of the of the movie, like you know when they're in that already in those shows, like the little Egypt and uh, Sandow, you get the feeling that they've known each other for years already at this point. Yes, they're both kind of professional snake oil salesmen. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. they do their snake oil salesman routine on each other, yes. but they're both such old hats at it that they both know the other is full of shit, but they never call each other out. Quasi-adversarial, but they also like each other, Yeah. but they also screw each other over a lot. It's, yeah. It's a good challenge. Like they have to, they have to keep, you know, updating their techniques, their their methods, and be, you know, be the best salesman that 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 they can be to attract the the best talent. Yeah, that's a that's a good way of putting it. I think they have a a friendly rivalry. Yeah. Another conversation on the ship. I think it's Zegfeld who asks Billings, uh, "Do you know any talent in Europe, though?" Um, Billings says, "No." Uh, why? Do you? No, it's the other way around. Yeah, Billings asks if he knows any talent in Europe. Ziegfeld says, no, why, do you? And then Billings replies, only the greatest artist in Europe. Ziegfeld asks who that might be, but Billings won't tell him because he knows Ziegfeld would try and poach them if he knew who it was. That's part of their rivalry is uh, stealing acts from each other. Yes. Uh, Which, in the movie, as we see, only works one way. It's always... Uh, Ziegfeld approaching talents and stealing them away from Billings. Yeah, Billings is always the one who discovers people, and then Ziegfeld just steals them from Billings. Yes. Bill- Billings basically functions as a talent scout. Billings' manservant Sydney then approaches and says that the lady wants to know if there will be three for tea this afternoon or just two. Just two, says Billings quickly as he walks away. <laughs> Does not want to give Ziegfeld uh, another opportunity to steal his lady away. Ziegfeld asks Sidney how much Billings pays him, and Sidney responds that his wage is $100 a month. Not very much, is it? says Ziegfeld. Hadn't thought of it, is the reply. Well, do think about it, says Ziegfeld, and we fade to black. We come back to see a carriage pulling up to a hotel in London, and Ziegfeld and Sidney step out of it. He is not content (laughs) just to steal... Axe and women from Billings, he will also steal his uh, manservant. He will take everything from this man. They check in, and as Sidney is taking their luggage to their room, he runs into Billings, who tears into him for being a traitor and an ingrate. Uh, Ziegfeld comes up and tries to defuse things by telling Billings that he hired Sidney, Sidney because he's always admired how Billings looks, and he thought he could be the same if he hired Sidney. Billings calls bullshit and asks what Ziegfeld is doing in London. Yeah, Ziegfeld gives this speech about how, oh, I just wanted to be like you, Billings. And then Billings goes, yeah, you faker. He doesn't buy it for a second. Uh, Ziegfeld tells him he wanted to stay in Cairo longer, but lost $50,000 and only has 50 cents left. Also, could he have $5,000, please? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, the the beginning of another running joke is uh Ziegfeld is always uh always broke and who is here to bank him out it's Billings yeah he's always talking about how he's broke and yet he's always living in lavish mansions and wearing a tuxedo and yeah it's a constant thing of oh I have no money and then he has all this extravagant lavish stuff which okay Billings laughs and says he'll give him $500 if he catches the first boat back to New York. 
Zigbufell agrees and takes the money and asks if Billings will be returning with him. Billings won't, because he's meeting with Europe's greatest artist, like he said, whose identity he refuses to reveal until she's signed on the dotted line. To which uh, Zigfeld goes, aha, so it says she then. Mm. Which also, on the boat, they were, you know, trying to to fish information out of each other, but not revealing anything really. And in the scene, Billings is just revealing just enough yeah. and already enough and, and already too much so that Siegfeld can follow him and uh, trick him. Giving him an inch and Siegfeld will take a mile. Yeah. Billings then leaves the hotel in a carriage and Siegfeld runs out and pretends to have an urgent message for Billings so that the doorman will tell him where he went. Oh, was Billings here? Oh, shoot, I've got a, a very important message for him. Where did he go? And then he gets the information. Siegfeld is also very good at pretending to get the information he wants. Yeah. And then he tips the doorman five dollars and then five pounds. Five pounds is another uh, good bit where the doorman says, "You realize you tip me five pounds, sir?" And Siegfeld replies, "Yes, I'm trying to lose weight." <laughs> where Billings went is the Palace Music Hall, where the show isn't very good except for one French singer with eyes this big, named Anna Held. Siegfeld tips the doorman and is off. At the theater. Anna stands alone on stage, singing in a white dress that, by the standards of this movie, is very tame. Mm -hmm. It's a little lacy, but not too lacy. Nowhere near the level of extravagance that we will see in later no. performances movie. And, of course, she's got a parasol that's very lacy as well. Yeah. And she's also got a hand mirror that she's reflecting light into the audience, remember? Yes. And it does not look like many members of the audience are enjoying that because she's blinding them with it. <laughs> she is. You see uh, multiple people in the audience recoil and go, ah, and cover their eyes when she does it. Billings is sitting in the balcony enjoying the show until he spots Ziegfeld sitting in the opposite balcony and his smile vanishes. <laughs> The performance ends, and we join Anna and her maid in Anna's dressing room, where a large bouquet of orch orchids in a vase shaped like an elephant with a raised trunk has been delivered. I did not really catch on to that until the rewatch, that the he has the elephants as a recurring uh, visual yeah. motif. Yeah, in the vase, and later when he gets his big mansion, there's just elephant decorations all over the place. And whenever he sends her, whenever he sends orchids to women, they're always in an yep. elephant-shaped vase. In an elephant vase with a raised trunk. Yeah. It's his uh, good luck charm. There is a note with the flowers, but Anna has her maid read it because she speaks English, but she cannot read English. And that's another, I understand why, I would turn to you when we were watching the movie, and I was like, okay, these are two, they're, they're two French women, and I held was Polish and French, but they're, they're supposed to be two French women, they talk to each other in English, and I understand this because they haven't found a way to do subtitles yet. But it just, it annoys the shit out of me whenever I watch a movie and two people who should be able to speak the same language to each other have to speak in a different one for the benefit of someone else. Like in All Quiet on the Western Front where the entire German army spoke English. <laughs> yes. The note is from Ziegfeld, of course, and it says that it's very important for her future that she meet with him before signing any contracts. She tells her maid she won't see Ziegfeld and then instantly changes her mind. A sign of things to come. 
and says she will see him since the flowers are so lovely. Meanwhile, Billings leaves the theater to meet with Anna, and Ziegfeld follows him while swearing up and down he's not following him. They just, like, come out of the door together, and Billings, like, tries to say goodnight to him so that he'll go away, and then, yeah. you know, Billings will take a few steps, and Ziegfeld will follow behind him, and uh, Billings keeps stopping and go, I wish you wouldn't follow me. I wish you would, you know, buzz off somewhere, and uh, Ziegfeld keeps going, well, we're just walking the same direction. I'm not yeah. following you. I just happen to be yeah, going I, your way. I just happen to be going your way, and then they come to the, the door where Billings has the meetings, and Billings goes inside, and Ziegfeld just follows him right inside, <laughs> not even trying to hide it. They enter the building with Anna's dressing room, and the maid comes out asking if a Mr. Ziegfeld is present. And then Ziegfeld goes back and he gives Billings his coat to hold while he goes back to talk. In Anna's dressing room, Ziegfeld is introduced, and Anna asks if he works in the theater. He tells her he's a producer, and she asks if he knows Billings. Uh, never heard of him, is the reply. America is a big country, though, so Billings may be one of the Western producers uh, who puts on shows for Indians, at which point Anna gasps, and this is another one of Ziegfeld's trips to, uh, tricks to discredit Billings and uh, get things to go his way because she doesn't want to go and perform for savages, Yes, she says. Ugh. Savages is her word, yes. not ours. Yes. Anna then asks if he liked the show, and Ziegfeld says uh, yes and no. Uh, Anna demands an explanation, and he tells her that her singing is a bit nasally, and only one of her dresses is, was any good. The usual negging thing. This is how he gets women on his side, by by putting them down. And He's then... like, he gives a compliment and then gives a, a negative criticism. Yeah, he wants them to be incensed and then uh, want to prove themselves to him. Uh, he use and it's he doesn't just use that technique on women either. He does it for other people who are asking for money from him and stuff later yes. in the film. Yeah, that's that's his main technique is to get people to think that they want to give him the thing he wants. He has in the sense to me like the same characterization as uh, Yancy in Cimarron is like people know him and admire him. And they want to be in his good graces. Yeah. Where he differs from Yancey is, though, is you can actually see what he's doing on his end to make that make that reaction happen in people. Yeah. Whereas Yancey just gave no shits and was just, like, by the grace of God, everyone just loves him. But Zegfeld, at least, he has a, a strategy he's employed. He's like a master manipulator. Yeah. He knows full well what he's doing and he's very, very good at it. Yeah, but he's also being shitty to some to oh, uh, he's some being, people. Being like, shitty to almost everyone around him. Yeah, but it's sometimes really disgusting. Yeah. She tells him he's very rude and to get out. He takes his hat and cane back from the maid, which he gave to her when he came in, and goes to leave. He takes one step out of the door and she calls him back. Uh, and the hat and the cane return to the maid. He always has this little, uh, he hands them very formally to the maid and then bows when he gives them back. Yeah. She tells him he's very honest, and she likes that. His note said he was important to her future, and she wants to know why. Because I can get you in the best theaters in front of the best people, he says. How much will you pay me? I'll advertise your name from every corner, he says. How much will you pay me? I'll give you more publicity than you can ever dream of, he says. How much money 
will you give me? You'll see the golds, the asters, the Vanderbelts, he says. First, you must speak about the money, she insists. <laughs> he then tells her that he'll match her biggest offer, which turns out to be a $10,000 salary on top of a $50,000 signing bonus, as well as waiting until she finishes her London contract. He then reveals that he doesn't have $10,000, uh, in fact, doesn't even have $1,000. But he'll spread her name all over. Get out! Imposter! You are no gentleman! Trying to make a fool of me? Get out! Ziegfeld takes his hat and cane from the maid again, takes another one step out of the door, and is called back, and returns his hat and cane to the maid again. You're very honest. I like you very much. Cut to sign advertising Anna Held in The Parlor Match, presented by Florence Ziegfeld. It worked! It worked, and it was, but it was very unsatisfying in a way. Like, there was... I feel like there was potential for some really good banter in the, in the scene, and it's, instead it's just like comical dialogue because she keeps repeating, how much money, how much money, how much money, but there is almost seems like they're not talking to each other she is talking at him he's talking at her but they're none of them neither of them is listening to the other and, and actually having a, a conversation yeah all the scenes with anna are a little off because she's her emotions are so all over the place and she just swings back and forth between extremes that it seems like she's never really communicating with people yeah. she's just She's just permanently stuck at 11 yeah. for all her emotions, and she's just emoting all over the place. She quickly changes her mind all the time. Yes. This woman cannot make a, a, a firm decision on anything. To an exhausting degree, which yeah. we see her for the first time with the, the get out, and then as soon as he takes one step out, no, no, come back. You're very honest. I like you. And then not even a minute later uh she hates him again and then he gets another one step out of the door and no no come back come back just yeah make up your mind please i do like the the bit about him very uh formally and ca uh, carefully like handing his cane and hat to the maid and then carefully taking the back and bowing each time yeah he never yeah zigfeld himself never gets flustered about anything even when his schemes don't work and this this is the it, it's baffling because his strategy is so often to just say, no, I don't have any money, but you can count on me and I'll, I'll definitely get it done and, and people just go along with it. And it, it, yeah, it works. It works every time. He just promises the moon and it works. I know. It's with just, with it's... nothing to back up his claims. Baffling. People stream out of the theater with various comments being made about the performance of Anna's debut. I found her rather charming. I couldn't understand a word she said. Her eyes were so big. Uh, Ziegfeld stands off to the side and listens and then enters into a small room on the side of the theater where the money from ticket sales is being counted by a man named Sam. They have a loss of $1,209.68, which in adjusted for inflation would be about $25,000. Oh, jeez. Ziegfeld says that's terrible and sends a telegram to Anna's press agent complaining about her name not being in the papers. 
We then shift to Anna practicing a song in her apartment with a man we've never seen before playing along on the piano. His name is Pierre. It's a very gaudy piano. Mm-hmm. I cannot... I just simply do not have the time and energy to delve into describing the environments in this movie. Just safely assume that any scene we're talking about, that there are at least uh, five chandeliers and ten pounds of gold and... Uh, at, flowers everywhere. Yeah, flowers everywhere, and everything's just gilted and gaudy and the most expensive, uh, extravagant possible version of what it could be. Mm-hmm. Like, this piano has, like, floral designs all over the side of it, and there's, like, a lace covering on it, and it's got uh, several bouquets of flowers on top of it. It is uh, overbearing in its uh, gaudiness. She stops the practice because she is much too much in here, she says, patting her chest. Anna does not speak the best English. She calls in her maid, and she asks if the reporters are still in the lobby. They are. Make them leave. Push them out. Tell them we are going back to France, she says. The maid runs to pack their bags, and Pierre begins to play the piano in celebration. We are going back to Pelly, he says. Mm. Anna instantly changes her mind and tells her maid to put everything back. Not even, not even 10 seconds after she tells her to pack. This is, this is how extreme her waffling is. Pack it all up. No, no, no. We will not be going. Pierre suspects it's because she's in love with Zegfeld and tells her that she'll never be able to hold on to him uh, since every woman he meets falls in love with him. She then goes on a rant about how Zegfeld sends her 20 gallons of milk every day and has told the papers that Anna bathes in it. Which is one of the, the schemes that we were talking about earlier. Is that he he was indeed you know, sending her 20 gallons of milk and just making shit up about how she bathes, bathes in, his, in it uh, and that it makes her, her, her skin glow and it makes her look younger and... It's just one of the one of the things that he did to, so that the press would talk about her. Her name would be in in the newspapers, and it would attract people's attention, and hopefully attract people to his show. Yeah, any publicity is good publicity in Zegfeld's eyes, and he is just as adept at manipulating the press as he is at manipulating individuals. Yeah. He knows how to to cook up a story that will get people's attention. The maid then informs her that Ziegfeld is in the lobby, and Anna says she never wants to speak to him again. Two seconds later, she tells the maid to bring him up. She resumes uh, practice as he arrives, or pretends to resume it, but then dramatically quits again and shoves Pierre out of the room once Ziegfeld arrives. Then Ziegfeld and Anna argue about the milk bath story, and he tells her she needs to play along with it so her name will be in the papers. He calls the front desk to have the reporters sent up while Anna frantically tells him that she's never been so ashamed and that she'll tell them it's all made up, that she's going back to France. Pack the bags, quickly! She continues to freak out, but Ziegfeld eventually gets her to agree to go along with the story by promising to add more performers to her act, which is bizarre. He eventually gets her to calm down. She wants a style of dress like one of the the famous actresses at the time. Mm -hmm. And the way he consoles her is by saying, well, I won't get you that dress because you're not the type for it, but I'll dress up all your backup dancers like that, which that does not... 
that is not it didn't feel like a compliment i didn't understand why uh, why she went along with it just another instance of wait why does this work <laughs> um well you know thinking about it maybe if the backup dancers are dressed like that but not her they then they all look the same and she stands out yeah i could see that i think this is the worst scene in the entire movie the scene between the two of them here just because of how exhausting Anna is during this whole thing, because she is... This scene goes on for probably close to 10 minutes, and she is just yelling and flailing and being hysterical the entire time. Yes. And she she waffles back and forth so quickly about all the things she wants like pack the bags unpack the bags we're going back to france no we're not going back to france i will never talk to him again send him up it's just oh my god and it just goes and goes especially her her rage at the whole milk thing she goes on about the milk for so long and it's just yeah, I want him to send me diamonds, and does he send me diamonds? No, he does not send me diamonds. You know what he sends me? He sends me milk, and I do not like milk, and he sends me so much milk, and I am so ashamed. I've never been so ashamed. Pack the bags. No, unpack the bags. And can you believe how he treats me? And it's so terrible. And it just Stop goes... Stop being Anna. It, it just goes on like that for like 10 minutes, and it's like, oh my God, shut up. She's an, an uh, ungrateful brat also. Like she, like you said, she's in probably some of the... He puts her up in some of the best uh, hotels. She has everything that she needs. Uh, he sends her uh, dozens and dozens of orchids every day, which orchids are freaking expensive. Yeah. And um what does she do with the with the flowers? She just like drops them on the on the floor and you know, he can pick them up. Yes. And and or send her new ones. They're like, Jesus Christ, like maybe the show is not uh, doing as well as it could be, but you're still doing what you love. You're still uh, dancing, uh, singing, being in a show, being, uh, you know, touring around the country. Yes, it could be doing better, but also you're doing what you love. Yeah, and this this movie is three hours long, and this is a very early scene in the movie. So this happened, and I was just like, Oh no, please. Is this going to be like this all the time? Please tell me we do not have to put up with this for three hours. It was exhausting just for 10 minutes of it. Just, I guess they thought it was funny how she couldn't stick to any decision for even five seconds, but I just found it exhausting. He tells her that he will get uh, the costume she wants for her backup dancers, uh, and we then cut to her act, and the women in the audience gossip about how good her skin looks from the milk baths. The story worked. People are talking. After the performance, Anna returns to her room to find another bouquet of orchids and another note from Ziegfeld. My darling, I never knew that one long year could seem like one short moment. You are magnificent. My wife. 
Along with the flowers comes a diamond bracelet, and Anna is so thrilled that she immediately runs to the dressing room of the lesser dancers, because Anna has her own dressing room, and then there's like a common dressing room for the, you know, just the, the backup dancers. All the girls ooh and ah over it, except for one blonde named Audrey, who just sits staring daggers into the mirror. Aren't you interested? Anna asks Audrey, to which Audrey replies, I would be. If they were mine, mm. Audrey had just the eyes of a shark. <laughs> she, you can just tell just by looking at her, she's vicious. Yeah, she wants the she wants fame for uh, for herself. Yep. One little note here is when he calls her uh, my wife, is to notice that they were not like necessarily legally married. In the sense that they had never had like a, a ceremony, they uh, lived together under a common law marriage, which you can essentially at the time meant that you could declare a, a relationship and declare that you were living together, and that made it a, a legal, sort of a legal marriage. Yep, legal enough. Yeah, legal enough. Good enough for government work. We then get a scene with Ziegfeld and Anna together in her dressing room with Anna pouring uh, compliments and praise on Ziegfeld. Uh, she's saying, I will count the diamonds in the bracelet. Because she has a very thick French accent to the whole thing. That's one of the things in the 10 minute scene where she's freaking out. She's yelling at Pierre because he's trying to help her get rid of her accent. And I don't want to get rid of my accent. Yeah. He's trying to uh, get her to pronounce jolly and she just keeps saying jolie, jolie. which jolie is... Uh, a word in French it means pretty but it completely changes I think the uh, the meaning of what she's singing so he explicitly takes the time to tell her it's jolly and, J and then she just keeps repeating not five seconds later jolie yeah this is what I said jolie <laughs> so she tells him she'll give him a kiss for each diamond in her bracelet until he reveals that he wants to start producing another show without her in it. You can't be in two shows at once, he says. All the praise is uh, retracted, and she is so disappointed in him. Yeah. Immediately into her hysterics, once again. Uh, only emotional setting is 11. Get out. Go. Go. Cut to Billings entering his, his office to find uh, Ziegfeld sitting at his desk. Ziegfeld pitches his idea for the new show. I want to do a show with silk drapes, with lace, with beautiful girls. I want to surround them with glitter, glamour. I want to glorify them. And he's even got a name already worked out for the new show. The Ziegfeld Follies. Which, by the way, were... So, same thing. In doing uh, research for the podcast, I found out that the Ziegfeld Follies were supposed to be like an imitation of the Folie Bergère in Paris, which is sort of a cabaret burlesque uh, shows in Paris. And it wasn't Ziegfeld's idea. Apparently it was Anna who suggested doing it, but she's never credited for, for this in the movie. It's all Ziegfeld's idea and nobody else's. Yeah. Despite the fact that she's very against it in this movie. Yeah. All Zegfeld needs is some financial backing from Billings' partner Erlanger. Uh, Billings also 
uh, ran out of money at some point and had to partner himself yeah. with Erlanger. Billings tells Ziegfeld, this all sounds crazy, but maybe he'll talk to Erlanger tomorrow. Uh, Ziegfeld leaves, and Billings immediately goes to Erlanger's office and tells him to give Ziegfeld the money. Cut to the opening of the Ziegfeld Follies, and the house is packed. Before we can get to the girls, we get a visit from our old pal Racism, though, because the opening act is a whole song performed in blackface. Yeah, that wasn't great. Ugh. That was, yeah. Not not just blackface, the entire head. Yeah. And I don't know why, because the guy is just, he's just singing a song about a girl he loves. Yeah, that was nothing... Nothing ever calls for a blackface, but even uh, there's nothing in the act that calls for it. Yeah, there's, well, not that calls for it, but there's just nothing in the act that utilizes it at all. So, yeah. it, why? Behind the scenes, there's drama from the man providing all the costumes because he won't allow them to be used until he receives payment for them. Ziegfeld is summoned and wants to see the costumes before he pays. He says they're terrible, and he wouldn't humiliate his girls by making them wear such rags, uh, which makes the costume maker plead for them to be used, even if they aren't paid for. Ziegfeld strikes again. This is his usual strategy of making people think that they want to give him the thing he actually wants. Mm -hmm. Where he, he flips the... He reverses things on uh, people, where uh, I the guy is there to get money out of him and not allow him to use the costumes, but then mm. he says, well, I don't want to use the costumes, which is reverse psychology, which makes the guy, oh, no, you ha you have to use them. Please use them. I'll, I'll, I'll be disgraced if you don't use them. Yeah. And then, which allows Ziegfeld to use them without paying, and then the guy walks away, and he, uh, one of the stage hands whispers to Ziegfeld, like, but they're beautiful, though, and Ziegfeld's like, yeah, I know, they're they're amazing. But he's just... <laughs> He's doing what he does to get what he wants. Uh, Ziegfeld then waits in the wings as the main act is about to begin and is asked by a stagehand if the stairs are high enough this time on the set. Wouldn't mind a few more, says Ziegfeld. And then we have the first big production, which is the, the layer cake. It starts with just a single man singing in front of a curtain. Mm -hmm. It's an enormous curtain. It must be like 70 feet tall. It's huge. It dwarfs him. And it really looked... I turned to you uh, while we were watching the movie and it really looked to me like the same, almost the same stage as uh, Broadway Melody. Like the, just the shape of the of the stage. Everything in the in this shot to me looks like the Broadway Melody. I, it must be bigger. I don't think I it would, would have the space to, to do what they're about to do on the, the Broadway Melody stage. I know, but it, just the shape of the it shape. Looked, uh, looked the same. Yeah, I can see that. So the he begins to sing, the enormous curtain slowly rises up to reveal this enormous... We just see the very bottom of it. It, it looks like a layered wedding cake, but we start down on the bottom on the outer rim, mm -hmm. and the, the whole thing rotates. Yes. So it rotates very slowly, and we go along the bottom outer edge of it and see all these extravagant, amazing costumes in different styles. There's, like, medieval-style dresses of, like, uh, royalty and uh, the Elizabethan era, very lacy. There's one dress that's huge, and it almost looks like it's made out of tinfoil. It has almost, like, a metallic sheen. Yes, I remember that. Uh, it also brought to mind like Christmas trees because it's <laughs> there's like it's, it's just stuffed with ornamentation yeah. on this dress. 
it look it must weigh over a hundred pounds and there's like no way in hell the the woman could move inside of it yeah huge and shiny and uh over decorated and then it continues to rotate and we move into like an oriental themed space yeah. where they're wearing like kimono and playing zithers and there's one woman who has this huge headpiece huge headpiece is a recurring thing that almost looks like a, a peacock's tail or a clover that's shaded in different blues, I assume, because the film is black and white, which is a travesty. It would have been amazing to see all this in color. And it continues to go around, and there's a, a clown singing opera mm-hmm. standing in the side of it and on top of the little, uh, it's like an alcove he's standing inside of, a circular yeah. alcove, and on top of that there's a woman dressed in like a, a flame, a sparkly flame dress. He's with... singing a, a piece of opera that everybody would recognize. It's like, sorry. Yep. I'm sure you recognize it if you hear it. Very, it sounds like a, a lamentation. Yes. And then it continues to rotate and you slowly start going up the, the staircase that's along the outer edge of the cake. And there are men in tuxedos and top hatch just standing on every single step just with their backs pressed mm-hmm. to the inner edge of the cake. And then on the outer edge, there's there's piano music being played and there's men on the outside of the stair who are pantomiming as if they're playing piano but they're not yeah and the whole time the camera is at an angle so that what we have seen and as the the piece is rotating it disappears from the shot and then we just we keep going as we go up the stairs of the of the cakes uh, and it that's really that was really beautifully done it looked like it was one shot yeah. like it, there's so little it's there it seems like there's so little editing that it seems like it was all shot at, like in just one take it's yeah it seems like one continuous take which is wow they start going up the stairs with the men pantomiming piano and then they have a bunch of women coming down the stairs dressed like a combination between a, a bat and an imp. You remember yeah. those costumes where it, yeah. they're not symmetrical. They've got, they're very sparkly and black and they've got uh, masks on that are vaguely impish. And they've got like one bat wing, but just on one side, cause it's an asymmetrical costume and they're in heels and they're dancing down the steps. And then after them come the, the golden, they're like outfits made entirely out of string and they have kind of like mouse-ish kind of masks on. Mm-hmm. And there, I think there's three golden ones and then one black one with the same strings behind them. Yes, yes, yes. And then kind of vaguely Egyptian looking. Yeah. Animal headed. Yeah. And then after that, I think we move on to where it's just ton of women in dresses all just sitting on the steps on white dresses yeah the dresses are so big that the steps are just completely covered it's and it's just basically a bunch of heads poking out of an ocean of fabric as we move up and the they're all singing and dancing and then we get to the very top of the cake which is audrey in her own enormous dress that's so big it just drapes over the entire top of the cake yeah and then the camera zooms out and we can see the the background behind this whole thing is like a starry sky and it's huge and it's rotating and then when the camera fully zooms out the curtain comes down but it's not a flat curtain in front of the thing it is a curtain that is following the contours of the cake so it like comes down on each layer at a time Mm -hmm. 
I was blown out of the water by this whole sequence. This sequence is amazing. Yeah, like you said, it's a shame that it's not in color. I would have loved to see uh, what those costumes were. Yeah. And just, yeah, the whole production, it would have just been, I feel like it would just have been fantastic to see all the work that went into it and, and all, the, all the colors and all that. I would not uh, recommend sitting through this entire movie, but anyone listening, I would highly recommend at least going to YouTube and finding this sequence because it it blows even modern movies out of the water with just the the visual splendor of just every inch of this thing. It's incredible the the thousands and thousands of work hours that must have gone into this thing. Just and even just the like thinking that went into creating all the different pieces and, and environments of the uh you know around the cave is just yeah it's mind-blowing it's just, it's creative i don't know if you know i don't think ziegfeld was the only one uh working on it but it, yeah it was just it's one of the most creative things i've ever seen in my life yeah yeah, not, not just in the context of uh, this podcast, but just in the context of all movies I've watched. It, it stands out. It's, it's incredible. After the curtain finally falls, uh, we're in Audrey's dressing room in time to see her receive a diamond bracelet from Zegfeld that, that looks exactly like the one he gave Anna. rut raggy Yeah, and that's the second time we see that bracelet. We'll see it a third time. <laughs> yeah, he has... Ziegfeld definitely has his standard procedure. Yes. Anna then enters, compliments Audrey on her performance and the bracelet, and says she'll see her on the roof tonight for the after show. We move to the roof as well, and right into the second big production. Cannot stop for even a second to catch her breath before we're on to the next big thing. This one is the production with the moving stage. Yes, that was impressive. Yep. Imagine keys on a piano... And, and there were there would be five keys for this stage, but uh, the keys can like move independently of each mm-hmm. other, so they can uh, move forward uh, past each other in any combination at all. So like just the middle one can move forward, or just the middle one can move back, just the sides, like any combination of movement you can imagine, they can put it in that configuration. So the entire thing comes out in the beginning, and it's a line of girls holding strings. Mm-hmm. And then they throw the strings out into the audience. The audience members catch the strings, so yeah. the strings are going back into the the center of the stage. Do you remember the the song they were singing? Also, something about uh, about strings. You gotta pull strings. Yeah, you gotta pull strings. You gotta pull strings. Uh, yeah, the the music in this movie is, I think, a step up from other stuff in terms of uh, catchiness. Yeah. The lyrics for the song are, "Don't just sit there wishing. If you've got ambition, be a politician." <laughs> yes. And then they repeat that. And the strings go back into this giant bouquet of balloons. Mm -hmm. And then uh, it's this huge mass of balloons. And then it turns out the huge mass is made up of smaller masses of balloons that are tied to those strings in the audience. So they eventually, they tug on the strings and the balloons all come away, revealing a bunch of stacks. Uh, Was it hay or was it just solid seats? 
it felt to me like it was just solid seats. So, yeah, a bunch of solid seats, which are all filled up with girls, and uh, Ray Bolger sitting in the center, the the scarecrow, and he song, sings a song and like moves up and down through the different layers of the the seats while he's singing. And then I believe we move on to his solo performance, yes, where he tap dances, which was an, another amazing act just by itself because we talked about earlier he is just flinging himself all over the stage and seems like he's right on the brink of falling over and being out of control the whole time there's one point near the end where he's bringing both his feet up both of them are almost coming up past his waist and he's just doing it super quickly over and over yeah always always great to, to see the scarecrow he is a fantastic performer and then after he has his solo act I think that's when we move on to the set where it's like the exterior of a house Mm -hmm. and it's two uh, white walls and there's like a tree and a window and even some like birds, I think, decorated on it and everything's in white. And then the two walls of the house just pull off to the sides and then it's supposed to be the interior of a room, but it comes out in sections because the stage can move. So the middle comes out first and it's the middle portion of the room, and it has a couple on it, and they're singing about how they love each other. And then as they make their way through their song, another section of the room will just slide up on the stage yeah. until all five sections have slid up, completing the room. Mm-hmm. It's a set that appears in sections. It's incredible. The whole thing's incredible. Just these back-to-back amazing logistically, artistically amazing performances. Yeah, And it's meant to be so... We're supposed to be on the roof, but we it's almost set as the theater as well because we have people in the audience and the stage can come out towards the uh, the audience and there's not a whole lot of space uh, between the the audience and the stage when it's fully out. Like it's really that they calculated this so well uh, and they they really had to count on the extras not to move. Also because the it looks like the stage is almost touching people's tables. So it was really amazingly done. Yep, using every inch. So uh, the room finally completes itself and then these lace drapes come down from the ceiling. And then I believe they part to reveal that the room is just gone and now the stage is filled with four rows of five beds so 20 beds total all with women in them the the women sit up in unison and they go through this routine where they all fold their blankets the same way Mm -hmm. together and then throw them under the bed and then uh, each bed has a bottle of champagne on its corner they all pop open the champagne at the same time and pretend that the corks are like powder puffs and then they pretend to drink the wine then they put the wine on the back end of the corner and they stand up on the beds and start dancing on the beds and then the different sections of the stage move in and out so the beds are sliding and moving as they're dancing on top of them. Yeah in itself I was gonna say in itself that was super impressive uh, that the stage was moving and they were dancing and just not missing a beat yeah this it just is constantly one-upping itself every time this movie shows you something in these performances it's like oh you thought that was cool well watch this oh you thought that was good well watch this oh that was amazing watch this and it it just keeps going and you're like wow it 
every time you think it can't get crazier, it gets crazier. It's... Which really gets the, you know, the, the uh, title of Ziegfeld Follies. Yeah. Uh, after the, the dancing on the bed concludes, I think that's when we get the impromptu fashion show where individual women just start coming out in these incredible, over-the-top, gaudy outfits. Completely impractical. You could not walk through a doorway with these things. <laughs> They're so big. Like, one of them, it's in the shape of, like, a peacock tail on top of her head, but it's it's enormous. The whole thing must be, like, probably four or five feet tall mm -hmm. and, like, seven feet wide, and then it goes back in, like, a train behind her. So it, it's like she, she's in the center of just this waterfall of fabric. Yeah. And there's another one where it's fairly normal, except she has her arm in, like, this giant lobster claw kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. It's almost twice as tall as she is and she just has to like drag it around and like her arm is inside of it yes and then there's another one that has like these big wings just coming up out of her legs it looks like she has to hold them yes she has to hold hands. she has to hold them and then there's another one where they all line up because they first they all come out one by one individually to show off their uh, incredible outfits and then it cuts to them all like all lined up. And there's a few in the lineup that didn't come out individually. There was one that had like these bell kind of sleeves where they're like there's stuff hanging down underneath them. Mm -hmm. uh, a little oriental in design. And just man, man, these costumes. I hope they still exist somewhere. I hope so. I hope that, that they've been preserved. Because each one of them is a, a unique one of a kind thing. Incredible. And then... I believe that that's the end of it, right? Yes. After the, the fashion show. Uh, Ziegfeld and Anna uh, watch from one of the tables nearest the stage, and once the show ends, Anna leans over and says, You are interested in Audrey, oui? I'm interested in all my girls, is the reply. But perhaps a tiny bit more in Audrey, oui? Yes, she's very unusual. I could make her a great star if only she'd let me, says Ziegfeld. Audrey then comes out from behind the curtain, and she was one of the women wearing one of the unique fashion show outfits. She's just got this, like, crown of crystal bubbles almost mm -hmm. on her head. It's one of the more tame outfits, actually. She comes out from behind the curtain uh, because she's been asked by the other girls to give a speech. She confesses that she's drunk, and Ziegfeld scowls in disapproval. He does not like this, not happy about it. She says it's all thanks to him because he taught her how to walk and to dress and how to smile. The audience applauds, and Ziegfeld stands up to make his own speech, which is to ask the audience to forgive Audrey for not being herself, which I don't... I mean, I get that actresses in show business is all about branding and appearances and all that, but she's not slurring her words or being outrageous or anything. Like, you can tell she's the tiniest bit unsteady on her feet, but... Yeah, but it's just the fact that she she confessed that she's drunk and there's a lot of people there. It might, it's like what looks like opening night and there's going to be people you know writing about it in the yeah. in the newspapers so if words gets out that she's drunk and uh, people you know come more and more to the to the follies and and she's continuously drunk 
then it's not good publicity for the show or for Ziegfeld. Yeah. He also wants to acknowledge a rising star that is destined to reach the top of her profession, Sally Manners. Sally rises from her seat to applause, and her manager tells Billings it was nice of Ziegfeld to promote his star like that. Mm. Hope you've got her on a long contract, Billings laughs. <laughs> Next scene is Sally signing a contract with Ziegfeld. <laughs> yeah, Billings knew exactly what was going to happen. I'm glad that the, they just cut out the uh, the charming portion of this pattern this time. It's like, yeah, you you get it by now. He's gonna he's gonna. Uh, charm her over to his side somehow so here you go we just cut to the chase uh, she's signing the contract as reporters take pictures uh, Sally glides out of the room and the newsmen follow in her wake leaving Ziegfeld alone at his desk and I'm pretty sure this is the last time we ever see her again yeah we do know that he at some point he's going to put on a show just called Sally and in fact Ziegfeld put on multiple versions of the show uh, over the years but she never has any speaking lines or anything like that ever again. It's just this this little two-minute chunk where she's introduced as the, the rising star, then signs the contract, walks out, and it's just gone. And that's it. Yep, gone from the plot forever. Ziegfeld uh, buzzes his secretary and tells her to send in the girl that claimed to be a friend of his that showed up earlier, which we were not around for. The mystery woman enters, and Ziegfeld assures her that he recognizes her while incorrectly guessing where they met multiple times. She, Don't you remember me? Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course I remember you. Uh, uh, you're, you're the girl from the boardwalk, right? Uh, I saw you in an audition just a week ago, and uh, no. And they do that a couple times, and he's always wrong about it. She sits down at the piano in his office and plays a tune to give him a hint. A light bulb then goes off. It's Mary Lou, the little girl from his father's music school, all grown up. Which tells us at that point how much time has passed, but somehow Ziegfeld still looks the same. Yeah. He does visibly age toward the end of the movie. Yeah, for the majority of it, he there's no noticeable change in his appearance at all, despite the fact that decades are passing, allegedly. She sits on his lap uh, and kisses him, and he tells her he's a married man now, to which she replies, but being married in New York doesn't mean anything, mm. does it? He pushes her off and asks her why she came. She wants to join the Follies, even though her fiancé won't approve. Ziegfeld calls in his secretary and has her take Mary Lou down to get her place in the Follies. Mary Lou exits the room and the movie, another lady we never see again. But... In a sense, a promise that he kept, like he told her that he would put on a show someday with uh, and put all the little girls, you know, uh, have, yeah. have a show for his girls and that she could be in it. And then that's a promise kept. Yeah. There are just so many scenes in this movie like this where he goes through the pattern of charming a woman and then you have scenes around him charming them and then signing contracts and wooing them and then they just never show up again and it's just why do they why do they devote all this time to these people that are only going to appear once it yeah. goes also for i think for anna and later on for his second wife billy because they're both performers and you get the idea he wants to be around them and he wants them to be in his shows but we see anna in the show but for the minute amount of time and then very quickly he's oh i'm gonna put on another show and you won't be in it you know you can be in two shows at the same time 
there is this yeah pattern of him not just stealing women away from billings but also stealing their talent i feel like they quickly become they were the both billy and anna they're uh, you know the shining new star when uh, when he meets them and then very quickly they just disappear he's like he said earlier they they're not shiny enough they're they're not new enough in it anymore and yeah that's a that's one thing i was thinking about is that he when you really think about it in this movie he's uh, really shown as someone who still and uses people's talents for his own benefit and then once they're not good enough anymore, they just he just like you know shoes them to the curb, mm. and that, yeah, that's one one thing. Like I I was expecting to see more of Anna or maybe more of Billy or any of the other girls, but they they just they're completely they disappear. I am perfectly fine not seeing more of Anna. <laughs> On stage, maybe. Anna oh yeah, liked. yeah. I not not in a in, not in a context when she's not singing. Yeah, I should give her credit where credit is due she does have a very beautiful singing voice and yeah, yeah her por- her performances are great it's just off stage she's a menace yes yeah uh Ziegfeld is always on to the next he's always looking for the next big thing and he's never satisfied and never content and you know once he gets the big thing he wants it's just on to the next thing he wants a recurring pattern and man Man, Mary Lou is trouble, because it also highlights another weird thing about this movie is Ziegfeld himself does not super strongly pursue a lot of the women. A lot of the women just, like, throw themselves at him. Yes. Mary Lou is the worst offender here, because she just walks into his office and just, just starts trying to make out with him. Yeah. Despite the fact that he is married and she's engaged. Mary Lou's trouble. <laughs> I was almost I was waiting for disaster to happen in this uh, in this scene like when she when they're at the piano and she sits on his lap and kisses him multiple times. Yeah. I was waiting for somebody to, to enter either a secretary or his wife and yeah. To be fair also throughout the entire movie and we'll get back to that at the end of the of the synopsis. I was just waiting for trouble and to happen and everything to collapse so. waiting for the hammer to drop yes yeah it, it, it's even a little much for him in this scene because after they get up from the piano he asks her what she's doing to, uh, what she wants to do while she's in town and she says well first i'm gonna give you a big kiss and he says uh you've already done that twice <laughs> And she has, and like, she slow your horses. Yeah, she sits on his lap, just kisses him multiple times, and just, wow, she's she's going for it. But he gets her out of her hair, and we never ever see her again. Sam then enters and tells Ziegfeld he, that he's found cheap talent at a burlesque show. Her name is Fanny Bryce, and she isn't easy on the eyes, but is a great performer. Ziegfeld goes to see her perform, and is joined by Sam and Audrey. Mm-hmm. After their performance, Siegfeld visits Fanny in her dressing room uh, and brings her a mink coat as a gift. Uh, before we get to that, though, uh, this performance we get to see at the burlesque show is definitely a much, much lower scale production <laughs> yeah. than the other ones. It's like a very like low budget stage. It's a weird stage because it's got almost, it looks like, uh, I guess it's supposed to be a catwalk. 
but it's very, very narrow. It looks more like a boarding ramp to get onto an mm. airplane that's just projecting out of the center of the stage. I've never seen a stage like that before. Me neither. And there's, uh, yeah, lights down along the sides of the, of the narrow strip, and they don't walk on the narrow strip during the performance at all, I don't think. Just uh, Fanny Bryce, yeah. not the other Comes out onto it a little bit. Girls. Yeah, and all of the girls are of much lower quality than the the Zanfield girls. They're not very pretty. Their their hair is not very well done. The makeup makes them look like prostitutes and their costume makes them look like prostitutes as well. And they're they don't have voices that are as pleasant to listen to. No, a couple <laughs> of them definitely sounds like witches. <laughs> yeah. So it's a this is a budget production with the exception of uh, Fanny Bryce. And they're also, as they're walking out all in a row, they're, they, they're singing about what their names are. And it does sound like they're advertising themselves for prostitution. Yeah, it's like, this is my name and here's one charming piece of my personality. And then they wink and they go back off stage. Yeah. And then they all have grass skirts. And then Fanny Bryce sings about being like the queen of the jungle or something. Mm-hmm. And then it thankfully ends before things can get too problematic. Oh, he comes in with a mink coat as a gift, uh, but Fanny thinks he's just a salesman posing as Ziegfeld, and so she brushes brushes him off, but she uh, buys the coat for $40. She thinks it's a fake. Yeah. Uh, so she, oh, it's a, it's a very nice replica. I'll give you $40 for it. After he leaves, one of the other girls randomly decides that the coat must be stolen, uh, and Fanny instantly believes her with no proof and starts to panic. They just start, they start having an Anna and start oh well it's got to be stolen oh you're right oh, like what no how did we get here how did <laughs> she said it's got to be stolen because it it uh, looks and feels real yeah and they they don't believe it was really him so the only other logical conclusion is that it must be a stolen coat and now the police are going to be after fanny yeah a message that arrives from Ziegfeld telling her he expects to see her in his office tomorrow about joining the Follies. And when the message come, they think it's the police. They oh, Fanny has the other lady in the dressing room read like, I can't, I'm in, I'm in a panic. So she has to read it. It really was him, says the other girl. Fanny responds by sitting down on the ground and asking for some whiskey. We then see Fanny backstage at Ziegfeld's theater, dressed in a much fancier costume than she had at the burlesque show. It's very black dress with a big feathery hat and like a feather boa and a train behind it. She passes a mirror and she says she finally looks like a million bucks. She's moving up in the world. She goes out on the stage to rehearse and Ziegfeld stops things before they can even start. He thinks that she's overdressed and he has her outfit taken apart right there on stage and replaced with a thrift store shawl. We get a close-up showing Fanny silently weeping and Ziegfeld says if she could cry like that on command, she has a bright future ahead of her. Gross. I didn't like the scene. No, this I... is Ziegfeld at his worst. Because, yeah, she she's finally feeling good about moving up in the world and then just... The second she comes out on stage, just has everything, like her entire costume, just taken apart and reduced back to, like, lower than she was in the burlesque show. Well, and also in the burlesque show, she was... Fanny Boyce was a, a comedic uh, actress. She uh, she was 
like the like I said earlier, the original funny girl and all that. But in this scene, in this number that she's about, that she's rehearsing, she's dressed all in black and she's singing about her man, which we understand the, the song is about the man that she loved who died. So it's a com there's a a complete shift in the performance. I understand why she was crying, honestly, yeah. in this scene. Is, uh, that's not... I don't think that's what she thought she was signing up for. She is the, She's disappointed, and rightfully so. Yeah, yeah. She finally got what she wanted, and then it's immediately taken away from her. Yeah. She even comments that, uh, at, at least in burlesque, I was middle class. Yes. Here, you're uh, you're knocking me back down to, to poverty status with this, this shawl... Yeah, it just looks like a rag. Yeah, a rag. And then, yeah, you get the the close-up shot of her just silently weeping about what's happening. And uh, Ziegfeld's response to that is, Great! I just, w I only wish you could cry like that on command. Like, zero empathy or humanity to be found in him. Just, just gross. He's not, he's not usually that ruthless. No, but... It it fits with the character at the same time. Like he's again using other people's talents for his benefit. Yeah, I, he has the reputation of being uh, generous. In fact, because that's usually why he's broke is that he tips people so well. Mm -hmm. But yeah, here he just this is this is him at his worst. Ziegfeld then goes up to his office to have a conference with his showrunners and tells them he wants to put on a new kind of show. Always on to the, uh, the next best next, thing. Next best thing. Uh, something with a sweet and simple plot is what he wants. At the dress rehearsal for the new show, Ziegfeld is told that Audrey has stopped by with her champagne. <laughs> we find her standing on a table in the dressing room, drunkenly leading the other girls in a song. Ziegfeld throws everyone else out but Audrey and helps her down from the table and onto a couch uh, where she pulls him in for a kiss that Anna enters just in time to see. Ziegfeld tries to assure her that it meant nothing but Anna is never one to pass up an opportunity for drama. Fade into Ziegfeld reading the headline Anna held leaves Ziegfeld. This is one of my least favorite tropes in movies where a woman pulls a man into a kiss, mm -hmm. uh, the the man's partner walks in on the kiss happening, and then instead of the man just saying, hey, that wasn't my idea, she pulled me into that, yeah. the explanation is instead, oh, it didn't mean anything, and then his partner getting angry, like, just say it wasn't your idea. Yeah, get it right. Yeah, just just say, hey, I didn't do that, she's drunk, she did that. Problem solved. Jesus Christ. And it happens so often. It's such a trope. It ah. Oh. Then again, when you when you watch the scene here, he's not protesting in any way. Like he's he's very much also willingly going in for the kiss. Yeah, he didn't struggle hard enough. But I've seen plenty of variations where they do struggle and still get walked in on, and then it's still all somehow the man's fault, despite the fact that. He's not the one he that initiated the kiss. I did read, you know, in doing research for the podcast, that he, Audrey here in the movie, represents somebody else, some girl that he discovered when she was fifteen, and then she became a dancer and you know one of his stars, one of his girls, and that even though 
they were never in a relationship. Apparently, he was in love with her until the end of his life. Yeah, I just don't like it when drama in movies can be resolved by just using your words. And <laughs> yeah, commun communicate, damn yeah. it. Just say. Just say. Just say what happened. <laughs> and then the, the situation will be resolved. But nope, Anna Held leaves Ziegfeld. <laughs> As uh, Mr. Bacchus would say, uh, nothing lost, Mr. Christian. <laughs> <laughs> well, then also, you know, it comes back to that scene between Anna and Audrey when Ziegfeld has gifted Audrey with the bracelet and obviously Anna recognizes the bracelet. Yep. She recognizes that it's Ziegfeld's taste. So there's got to be also tension and uh, some jealousy going on because Audrey is, is still in the in the shows and then Anna isn't. Yeah, and Audrey's the one who went with him to see Fanny Bryce yeah. instead of Anna. So, yep. so there's other things going on, you know, behind the scenes that we don't get to see in the movie. Uh, yeah. Anna does not seem like a person who would ever be happy regardless of the situation she's in, but yes, I'm sure she has plenty of fodder for her uh, soap opera life that she wants to lead. Uh, Ziegfeld mopes around his room until Sidney enters to inform him that Audrey is there asking to see him. She must have seen the papers, says Sidney. Uh, Ziegfeld lets her in, and she mocks him over his failed marriage and failed show and asks why he didn't make her the star. Because I couldn't depend on you, says Ziegfeld. Audrey then yells that she hates him and is quitting his show and quitting him, and she never wants to see him again and punctuates her proclamation by picking up his elephant vase full of orchids and smashing it on the ground before storming out of the room. Sidney enters, and Ziegfeld asks him to send a message to Billings asking for money. <laughs> Yeah, the breaking of the... I didn't think any of it at the time, but the breaking of the elephant is really a symbol here because it, it, all, it all goes downhill from there. This is the beginning of the end. Yes. Uh, the elephant was broke and uh, so was his luck. We then see Billings in his office laughing it up before uh, going to speak to his partner Erlanger. Erlinger says he isn't interested in whatever new uh, scheme Ziegfeld is cooking up and would not loan Ziegfeld even five cents. Too late, says Billings, I already wired him the money. <laughs> this is a, a recurring, another recurring gag is that Ziegfeld always asks for exorbitant financing for his projects and the people he asks it from always, oh, that's outrageous, I would never do it. No, not in a million years. And then... Uh, somebody else will, like, oh, we already sent him the money. Yeah. Or they, they protest and then go, ah, but send him the money. Like, I, okay. It's, it's almost like he has this lovable rapscallion persona, like, all oh, Ziegfeld's at it again. Mm. You know, that attitude. Uh, we then get a montage of the new shows produced by Ziegfeld, and we come to a rest at a costume ball where a dance called the Paul Jones is about to happen. I had never heard of this before. Me neither. Uh, it is a dance where men and women, they form up in lines facing each other, and then the lines uh, like move through each other mm -hmm. in a kind of zippering fashion. And then there's someone standing off to the sidelines with a whistle, and when, then whenever they blow the whistle, 
whoever you're passing by at the moment, that becomes your partner to dance mm-hmm. on the dance floor. I had never, I, I have seen that before. I just never heard the name, the Paul Jones. Yep. Ziegfeld is there and he's talking about going home because he's uh, down about his divorce and his new show is not doing well. But then he spots a pretty woman named Billy Burke who is on the arm of Billings, of course, and tells the man overseeing the dance to blow the whistle every time he gets paired up with Burke. So every time he's passing by her, uh, the guy will blow the whistle and Ziegfeld will always be the one who gets to dance with the prettiest lady. After two rounds of the Paul Jones, Ziegfeld invites Burke out to the balcony to talk and asks if she's ever heard of Ziegfeld. Uh, She has, and word on the street is that he's a horrible womanizer. Before she can dig herself into a deeper hole, Billings shows up and calls Ziegfeld by name, revealing the trick. Next scene is Burke and Ziegfeld sitting on a bench holding hands and watching riverboats go by, which she didn't seem to like him at all in the previous scene, and then we just cut to the next and they're just on a date. We're just, we're not even, we're not even showing him charming women anymore. It's just, it's just assumed by the movie and the audience, like, you know what's going, you know he's going to get him, like, so here we are. He says he wants to tell her something, but she must keep her eyes on the boat or he won't be able to get it out. He then tells her he loves her and that she's already a great star, so he has little to offer her except her love. And throughout this sequence while he's making his confession she keeps turning away from the boat and every time she goes he goes back at the boat i can't do this while you're looking he has little to offer her except his love that isn't enough replies burke i'd expect part of your ambition half of your trouble two-thirds of your worries and all of your respect Aww. i like the two-thirds of your worries yeah that that was that was me to, to say. Yeah, this little section on the bench is probably the most touching and romantic of the whole movie. Yeah. With his, like, you gotta look at the boat or I can't say this. And then she keeps turning away. No, look back at the boat. I can't do it. And then her, yeah, I need your worries and your respect yeah. too. Half of your trouble, two-thirds of your, of your worries. I like that. Yeah, she's definitely the the most mature of, of the women he pursues in this movie. The most mature, the most understanding, and also the least after his money. Like we'll see, we see that in the in the Christmas scene. Yeah, certainly the only one who is not trying to make their life uh, a living telenovela. Yes. <laughs> she is not uh, even a fraction as dramatic as as the others. Cut to Anna reading a paper about uh, Ziegfeld's latest bride, and I had flashbacks to Mutiny on the Bounty here, to when we cut back to Captain Bly in the ship. Where we cut back to Anna's like, no. No, 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 no. No, she was cast off. (laughs) She's adrift in the ocean. Why are we back with her? She laments about all the good times that they had together and tells her maid to call him so she can congratulate him and then changes her mind, of course, as soon as the phone starts to ring. Call him up. I must say it. And ring, ring. No, no, I can't possibly. I can't do it. Hang up. I could never. And then he answers and she takes it anyway. Tells Ziegfeld how happy she is for him while tears stream down her cheeks. And once she ends the call, her maid asks her why she divorced him in the first place if she loves him so much. I was sure that it would bring him back to me, she replies between sobs. Do you feel any sympathy at all for For Anna? Yeah. Not really, because she, she decided to leave. Like you said, it's it would have been it was a, an issue that would have been resolved. 
if she had just allowed him to talk to her and tell her that it wasn't him who initiated the kiss and that there was Audrey's fall because she was drunk but yeah I don't really feel I don't really feel any uh, any sympathy to, towards her and then she does that that thing again and that scene where she's like call him call him and then as soon as the phone's ringing oh no 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 no, no I don't want to talk to him and eventually you know uh, she does it she changes her mind so often within the span of a few seconds and all that thing she said oh I thought it was going to bring it bring him back to me that's just a that's a very flawed strategy you don't you don't you know, divorce somebody <laughs> you don't uh, leave somebody in the hope that they're gonna come back to you and maybe be more faithful or no that's just no ask me ask ask me if I have any sympathy for Anna do you have any sympathy for Anna hell no <laughs> what's th- your what's your reasoning how do you feel about I think this about? falls into the category of uh, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Yeah, absolutely. Don't, yeah. If you're married, maybe just try having a conversation with your partner instead of these stupid soap opera tricks. Yeah. Yeah, so when your soap opera trick blows up in your face, what'd you expect? Some years later, on Christmas morning, Ziegfeld and Burke's daughter inspects the enormous dollhouse she's been given while Ziegfeld shows Burke... Uh, Excuse me, showers Burke with her own gifts. Yep, we just got a time skip and suddenly there's child. Yep, who's probably about five or six at this point. Yeah, somewhere in the like three to six range. She can talk and she's not wearing diapers. Yes. Burke says that Santa has brought her too many presents and should take some back. And their daughter overhears and hopes that Santa doesn't take her circus back because it's her favorite. They're in this enormous gaudy room and they even have like all the the servants in there too yes. to just be like everybody's watching them opening their christmas yes. presents it's awkward as hell you don't get anything but you can watch us open yeah. ours you can drool over all the diamonds i'm giving my wife but you'll get nothing and like it she only wishes it were a real circus cut to zigfeld's latest show a real damn circus Oh, before we move on to that, like the gifts that he gives to Billy, they're all gifts that he's given to other women in the movie. They before. are. Yeah, he oh, gi- he no. gives her the like uh, that fur or that mink uh, coat that he gave to to uh, Fanny Bryce. Oh um, no! Oh, Zegfield, no. He gives her that that same bracelet that he gave to Anna and Audrey. Oh, I, if it's not the same, it looks extremely similar. He gives her, you know, uh, rings and he gives her a necklace, and it's all it all they all look extremely similar to the uh, to the gifts that he's given to other women in the the movie. Uh, I mean, before, he does so. this shit so often. He's probably just got a guy. Yeah, he's probably got this on point. Hey, do you still have that model? He just knows, yeah, the, all the local jewelers. And he rings up and the usual Zegfield? Yeah, and the usual. Yeah. Gross. Latest show is a real damn circus, which turns into the third major production, the one with the dogs. Mm-hmm. It starts out as a circus. They got, like, the, the animal carts and whatnot. They have a strong man come out. They got a clown that comes out. And then they have the usual Zegfield Folly Girls mm-hmm. come out and say, this isn't the usual Zegfield show, and then they take over, and yeah. all the circus stuff goes away. And it's just an extended... This is the least impressive of all the major productions. Yeah. Because 
there's a few like parts of the stage that like raise and lower but not very much it's only a couple feet and they just have it to have like oh there's horses and the horse's front feet are just slightly higher than their hind feet and then the thing lowers down and the horses walk around and it's mostly just women in black tuxedo tops but with fishnets kind of tap dancing and they're all in black and then there's one like main dancer in white and she tap dances and twirls around and there's a bunch of dogs for the whole thing that are just standing in the middle of the stage and they follow directions i guess uh, from music and lights yeah because at some point some rectangles light up in front of them and then they get up and walk forward and then then they lay down and stop in the within the the square within the rectangle yeah and the dancers like jump over them and and move through them and all that and there was one dog (laughs) who had his own ideas and was kind of following his own cues yeah and got outside of his rectangle a little bit I don't know what kind of dogs they are because they're skinny like greyhounds, but they have long fur. I don't know. Yeah, no idea. I honestly don't know. I like that one that was in business for itself, though. <laughs> yeah, it was cute. Uh, yeah, like you said, it wasn't the most impressive uh, sequence or the most impressive uh, show, but it was still neat to see, you know, something that you usually just see at the at the circus being done on stage and it's done fairly well. Yep, a standard, standard musical performance does not live up to the the Ziegfeld name. Yes, in my opinion. After the show, Ziegfeld gets a hug from his daughter. I like the, she's cute and yeah. he's nice to her. It's a nice, it's a nice relationship. One of the yeah, most pleasant uh, interactions he has in the movie. And then we're treated to a succession of headlines about how Banks are pissed off at Ziegfeld for his lavish spending and how his recent shows have been flops and how Hollywood is now stealing stars from Broadway. They're moving on to bigger and better things. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, Hollywood is the new hotness and the old medium of Broadway is uh, suffering because of it. Which did happen. Like uh, uh, when we saw in It Happened One Night, the actress... Claudette Colbert, who played uh, opposite uh, Clark Gable, she was a, a Broadway uh, actress at first and then got poached by Hollywood. Yep. Why only be seen by one audience when you can be seen by all the audiences? Exactly. But Broadway is having its uh, revenge in modern times because streaming is now killing Hollywood. Yeah. Then we're in an upscale barbershop where three men are talking shit about Ziegfeld, saying he's washed up and out of touch. Uh, what they don't know is that Zegfeld is also in the barber shop, <laughs> and at first he the uh, the barber because he's laying back and he's got like yeah. a towel over his face, and the barber who's working on him goes to say something to the guys, but Zegfeld stops him. Yeah, he hops out of his chair after a few minutes of listening to it and tells the men he'll have four hits, four out by the end of the year, and, and he, uh, four all at the same time, all running at the same, on Broadway. Yep, and he leaves in such a huff that he uh, forgets to take his tie with him. How embarrassing. We next see him at home talking to Burke about the men in the barbershop, and she offers to finance his shows using her jewelry, including uh, the crown and some of the stuff he gave her for Christmas. The shows get produced and are hit, just like he said, and Zegfeld uses the police to round up the men who are talking shit in the barber's office, so just so he can say, I told you so. It's like a year later at this point. Yeah. So he, he has them brought in under false murder charges. Yes. And then, yeah, they all get into his office. I don't know if you'll remember me, but... But you murdered me last year with your comments. You murdered my reputation, and that's why, like, Jesus Christ. 
Sam is worried that men will sue for false arrest, but Ziegfeld tells him they have nothing to worry about because he's bought millions of stocks. Yeah. This, yeah this... And as soon as he says that, you're like, well, uh, we're close to the 1930s at this point, so uh, it's all, all going to come crashing down. And this is just a logical leap because I don't know what the hell stocks have to do with evading murder charges maybe the idea is that we're so rich now that the law can't touch us or that you know that he wouldn't get in trouble he could hire a good lawyer yeah because he would have money i guess the very second the words leave his mouth though the phone rings and mm. he's told that the stock market has crashed and he's lost everything is yeah. unintentionally comedic he's like and we'll be safe for the the rest of our lives mm. and ring ring <laughs> what huh it's all burning down? Yeah. We've lost everything? Oh, God. He's lost, he says, like $300,000. I think that's what point. they want from him. That's it, what they want from and him. And he okay. has nothing. Yeah. So, And then we get shots of all the signs for his latest shows receding into darkness. Yeah. It's that same montage we got when they were being produced, mm -hmm. but they're just receding away and fading out. He lights out. Everything is dying. We rejoin Zegfeld as he sits in a deep depression in a hotel room across the street from his theater. You can, like, see the, the light spelling out his name yeah. through the window. Which, that theater alone, uh, I saw that in real life it cost him two and a half million dollars to build it. In 1930s money? That's In 19... I think it was 1916s uh, around... Point, so, that's yeah. that's like all the money in modern times yeah he has an unspecified illness but the doctors are hopeful about his recovery which we learn from sydney as he relays the information to burke like as the scene opens we just see a nurse leaving yeah. and they don't ever really say what's wrong with him he had a in real life uh, i saw he had a, a lung infection that mm. turned really bad Relays that information to Burke, who is away working on her own career. She's, like, in costume on the phone in her dressing room, yeah. relaying this information, or getting this information relayed to her. Billings comes to visit and tries to cheer up Ziegfeld by talking about the good old days and planning a future trip to Cairo to find more talent. And they they do their bit again, where, like, are you looking for talent? No. Why? Do you know anybody? Mm. No. Do you? They do their shtick. Billings leaves, and Ziegfeld struggles up out of his chair, proclaiming that he must get back all his stars, must put on the biggest show of his life, must... And he collapses back into his chair in defeat and tells Sidney that he's so terribly broke. Yeah, I just found, again, that he had pleurisy, which is an inflammation of uh, tissue around the lungs. This some old 1930s disease that doesn't happen mm -hmm. anymore. It still happens, but it's not as common as uh, it used to be. He's got shingles and puff knuckle. Yeah, that's a viral one. Isn't Mr. Billings going to help you? Says Sidney. He hasn't got a nickel, is the reply. He was just lying to make me feel better. We're both broke. I have nothing. Nothing to leave anyone. Nothing, sir? You leave them the memories of the finest things ever done on stage, sir. I found that refreshing for once to get at least one of them to admit that they don't have any money and that, that they're pretending most of the time. It's coming back to the, you know, to their beginnings in the opening scene when they're just, they're selling a good time, but 
they don't really have anything other than that to sell. Yeah, Ziegfeld's financial situation is a roller coaster throughout this entire movie. At least that's what they claim it to be. Yeah. But uh, he never, <laughs> he never seems to be hurting for money. No, everything in, in whether he's staying at hotels or when we see his house, it is just it's luxurious as hell. I'm broke, he says as the caviar spill spills from his mouth and <laughs> onto his uh, million dollar tuxedo. Broke. Uh, Sydney then goes to call Burke again, while Ziegfeld picks up an orchid and thinks of all the memories he's made, and you get like overlay just ghost images of all the the productions and shows he's put on over the years yeah. just playing over his face his hand slowly sinks to the ground and he whispers that he has to have more steps in his next production i've got to get higher he says higher the orchid drops from his hand and he dies the yeah. end orchid are always his flower of choice yep a recurring motif throughout the entire thing. What did you think of the great Zegfeld? While I enjoyed how entertaining the follies were, I feel like that's to me that was the most entertaining part of the of the movie. I think it was really well made. Like I was impressed with all the how thoughtful some of those the folly sequences were, how they had been built, all the effort that went into creating those scenes. I was more interested in the, the follies and seeing all the technical achievements than I was in, you know, all the things that you know, that play around uh, that in Ziegfeld's uh, life. Like, I was not, not really interested in his personal life. I was more interested in the creative side of his life and his career. Yeah, I concur with all of that. The This movie is really hot and cold because the performances and the the stage productions that happen in are amazing they're incredible but then you get back to the actual plot and story of the movie and it's very repetitive yeah. and it, it's just the same thing over and over yeah he meets meets a girl steals her from billings or from somebody else and uh, he has a great success then yeah. he's broke yeah and, and then we're doing it all over again, yep. like five, six times in a movie. Rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. And I mean, I guess they were, you know, bound to follow the actual story of his life. Yeah. So you, in a way, you can't really fault them because. But it's exaggerated to a fault, I think. Yeah, and I also you said that uh, his wife Billy Burke was mm -hmm. a, a consultant for the movie. I wonder if that's why Anna is so terrible. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to come here. I'm going to make your your previous wife look like the biggest shithead <laughs> that's ever existed. Because, man, Anna is dreadful in this. Yeah, like you said, she's, uh, she's always acting like a nervous wreck. Can never make a firm decision on anything. She's like one of those kinds of people where you meet them and you're like, how are you not dead? <laughs> how, how do you operate? In... Yeah, and she feels, uh, she always uh, so nervous and everything. It feels, she feels like somebody who should have had maybe a, a heart attack in her, in her 20s already. Yeah, how, how, how do you exist? Because I don't know how people as emotionally unstable as you appear to be or being presented in this movie can manage to have a career or work or relate to other humans 
Well, that's the thing also. We don't see... We only see her as she meets Ziegfeld. There's no indication uh, that she was like that before. Although... This does not seem like a new thing. This does nothing yet like, like a new thing, no. But there's a tiny, tiny uh, indication when she... Uh, when she first gets the flowers and she gets the note from Ziegfeld, she tells her maid, oh, I don't think I'm going to see Mr. and Mr. Ziegfeld. And then not and even five minutes later, she's Not even five seconds later. Not even, she's asking for him to, to be let into her dressing room. Yeah. I don't think she ever makes a concrete decision through the entire thing. It's no. just that people start following one thing she said and then have to ignore her when she contradicts herself a yeah. few seconds later it's the only way anything ever gets done yeah this is one of the most difficult to rank just because of how inconsistent it is and the highs are really high but the lows are really low so it's just yeah i didn't like i said what i think i'm going to remember the most is what, what i enjoyed uh, during the movie like the and that first sequence with the the cake and yeah the layer cake the layer cake that was wonderful i would it blew my mind yeah amazing piece of art it just it it kind of feels like cimarron in a way in how they're presenting the main character as you know a good person when mm. they're they don't really understand what they're revealing it doesn't seem like because yeah. like oh he's he appreciated beauty and uh he's this great producer when it's really like no he just kind of lied a lot and people gave him a bunch of money yeah for he, no reason he was he was always uh, lying and getting his way and avoiding to pay people for stuff so that he had ordered yeah the number of times in this movie where he says well i i can't give you anything but i'd like you to give me this huge mountain of money and people just go well ah shucks what are you gonna do here's <laughs> yeah. your mountain of money I can't give you money, but uh, I want your talent. Yeah, baffling. It doesn't. It doesn't explain. I don't think it does a very good job of explaining why he was so successful. It just seems like he was lucky, and people just went along with what he said. It seemed to me like he. It's suggested maybe in a way that he had maybe more vision. And was probably a lot bolder than than other people. Certainly, a lot more than Billings. Yeah, if if you're back in those days, if you're crazy in an assertive way, <laughs> it's like, oh, he's an eccentric visionary. Yeah, he was uh, definitely had some unconventional methods. Too. More stairs, god damn it! <laughs> he's a genius. Give this man another mountain of money. I don't buy it. I was like, yeah, you know, I could probably do some pretty lavish, crazy things too if if people were just throwing mountains of money at me. Yeah, but it, it must, yeah, it must have been crazy to uh, to put on all those productions and to get people to to be in them and people to come in and watch them for some amount of hours and have dinner and drinks and have like a a really like full on live entertainment show. He almost seems like a 1930s kind of version of the what we have in modern times the the tech saviors called mm -hmm. the personalities like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk where yeah. they just take credit for other people's work. 
and, and, Absolutely. Yeah, because I'm sure he had some hand in those productions, but he's not the one making any of those costumes or building the sets or... Or doing the music or anything. Or... Even though he studied at his father's uh, school of music in Chicago. Yeah, he... He was mostly just quality control, it seems yeah. like, saying either like giving the thumbs up or the thumbs down to things, yeah. which... It's like, hey, I want to do a show about this, and then five minutes, and not even five minutes later, you see it come to life on screen. Yes, he uh, he commands his fleet of incredibly uh, talented artists to do things, and then he gets all the credit. Yeah. The Great Zegafil. Yeah, sure, okay. Which is, yeah, something to... That I didn't necessarily appreciate also because I'm sure that's how it was in in his life as well that people didn't get as much credit as they deserved. Oh, but, it still happens to this but, very day. Yeah, so. but nobody in the movie gets any credit at all for any for any of his ideas or any any of the things that they must have contributed to his shows he does when he's in his office in that one scene with his writer and his composer he does compliment them personally saying like well i've got the best writer in the business and the best set designers and all this but yeah. it's his name on the sign right yeah. Ziegfeld's follies Ziegfeld and no one else Ziegfeld's girls that's an aspect that i did not enjoy you know watching this Almost a hundred years later, uh, the Siegfeld girls and his whole speech about I like all the girls and I like all the all the little girls. I'm gonna put the I'm gonna uh, you know gather the prettiest girls and put them on stage and I'm like oh this I'm, is so icky. I'm going to make a harem, says Siegfeld. <laughs> yeah. And then everyone applauds. This is yeah, really, really icky. Yeah. But. And I'm gonna get in all their pants. <laughs> what a genius. What a visionary. So, where will you be rating the great Zegfeld? So, on my current rating, I have still have wings at number one. Yep. It's been a long time. Undefeated. Undefeated so Greatest far. movie ever made. <laughs> Greatest movie we've watched so far. Two, All Quiet on the Western Front. Three, Cavalcade. I put The Great Ziegfeld at number four because not for the story in itself, but really for how blown I was by all the by all the shows, by yes. all the sequences. Like I, this is by far the movie uh, that I think had that put so much effort in actually making a show. That, that people would remember. Like, I'm not going to remember the whole movie, but I'm going to remember those sequences. Yes, it is, it's been a long time since I was that impressed yeah. by a sequence in a movie. And, you know, the fact that this movie is so old just makes it all the more impressive. Yeah, that, that, I think that's mostly it, is that it, I was impressed by how much effort went into it, how much design... Uh, uh, went into it when it was. It's a movie that was made in the thirties. Yep. That was really great. It's my the only, the only thing that would have been better is if it had been in color and we could have seen all those costumes. Yep. Really. Then I have uh, it happened one night at number five. Mutiny on the Bounty at number six. The Broadway Melody at number seven. Grand Hotel at number eight. And Cimarron at number nine. What about you? This was a tough one. 
my current list is Grand Hotel at number one. Number two is Cavalcade. Number three is Wings. Number four, Mutiny on the Bounty. Number five, All Quiet on the Western Front. I, For those of you playing along at home, there has been a little rejiggering of the list. <laughs> yeah, I put uh, Mutiny on the Bounty above All Quiet on the Western Front because All Quiet on the Western Front just continues to evaporate out of my brain. <laughs> I can't remember why it was above Mutiny on the Bounty, and so it wasn't anymore. And then after that... Uh, below All Quiet on the Western Front is It Happened One Night, Broadway Melody, and then Cimarron at the very bottom. I think I'm going to put The Great Zegfeld in between All Quiet on the Western Front and Mutiny on the Bounty, so it will come in smack dab right in the middle of the list mm-hmm. at number five. Uh, those, about right. Yeah, those, those sequences uh, cover a multitude of sins, yeah. but there are still plenty more sins to put this beneath other things definitely memorable and mutiny on the bounty just had a stronger overall plot and characters whereas zigfield it has these oasises of awe and splendor and wonder in the middle of just this ocean of repetitiveness and drudgery yeah it has uh, a lot more redeeming qualities than some uh, some of the other movies we've watched. Yes. Next week we're moving into my realm because the next movie is The Life of Emile Zola. Jacques Hughes. <laughs> so that would be your second biopic in a row. Yep. Second biopic in a row. The genre is so nice, they did it twice. Exactly. They got on a roll. We had back-to-back Clark Gable, now we got back-to-back biopics. Yep. And then... And then it will be... Uh, 1938 will be uh, You Can't Take It With You by Frank Capra. And then 1939 will be Back to Clark Gable with Gone with the Wind. Just can't get away from him. Yeah. Two... Three more movies and we'll end the 30s. Ooh. Two hours, 20 minutes. Our longest podcast for our longest movie watch so far. Yeah. Well, before we uh, before we go, a little shout out to your dad. Because your dad has been watching the movies and listening to our episodes afterwards. And he's so far our most, the most faithful listener. And... Shout out to all of you who uh, are also faithful listeners and, and uh, listen to us every week so far. So yes. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, a big thank you to our number one fan, Lonnie Hoople. Thank <laughs> <Yes>. you, Lonnie. <laughs> we love you. <laughs> Anything else? No, I think that's it for this week. Alrighty. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you. See, See you next time. See you next week. Okay, that's it, that's it, that's it.